morning, church family. The title of the message this morning is Commissioned and Empowered to Witness. Commissioned and Empowered to Witness. To be commissioned is to be made ready for active service. Or it's to agree to do something on behalf of or at the request of somebody else. And as Christians, we are both commissioned and we are empowered to witness. If you're a Christian, that's the call. That's the commission. That is the empowerment. And to witness, to witness is to, is to testify about the truth about something. And so we are empowered and commissioned by Jesus to tell the world the truth about who he is. That's why the church exists. And so this morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Acts. We're going to be reading, and I'm going to summarize some of it, and we're going to read the text in some cases. The first two chapters, when you get a chance, read through the first couple chapters. But we're going to look at the first two chapters of the book of Acts. If you want to take a moment, you can turn there. The author of of the book of Acts is Luke. It's really part two of a two-part volume. So Luke, Acts is one word. And it's a historical account of the church. It's sort of a transition from where the Gospels end to the, sort of the rest of the story before you get to the epistles and the letters to the churches. It is a historical account. And it's important that when we look at the Bible that we know what type of genre of literature it is. And so an historical account is both descriptive and prescriptive. In other words, in some cases it is describing events that took place. And in other cases it is prescribing how we ought to behave. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. It was written likely in the early 60s because we know that Paul was martyred in 63 or 64. And so because it doesn't mention that, scholars believe it was completed before that time. And it's sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. It focuses on Paul's ministry to the Gentiles or the non-Jews and Peter's ministry to the Jews. It really should be called the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. Amen? Amen. And so an accurate description, it is the book of Acts emphasizes the work of God through the Holy Spirit and the lives of people who devoted themselves to Jesus. It is the work of God through the Holy Spirit and the lives of people who have devoted themselves to Jesus. That means that the book's still being written. When we, we, we used to do a, we had an outreach ministry in the city and we used to have like a, a group home and we did some things and we called it the Acts 29 Project. And when I told my father-in-law, I'm always picking on him. That's because uh, I love him, right? And so I, I told him, I said, hey, we're going to call it the Acts 29 Project. And he said, well, there's only 29 chapters in the book of Acts. Thank you. Uh, there's only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. The 29th chapter is still being written. Amen? We are a part of that. God didn't cease his work. We're still here, and he's continuing to build his church. Amen? And so the question is, are we going to be part of it, or are we going to sit on the sidelines? And so last week, Sam said, we can't do it. And he's right. And so you're here, and you're like, man, this Christian thing, I can't do it. Let me discourage you and say, you're absolutely right. You cannot do it at all. But he can. He can and he wants to. Amen. And so we are going to uh, look at the book of Acts. And one thing I've learned after two decades of ministry, 
it almost never looks the way we think it's going to look, right? And it's not about our ability. It's about our trust in him. It's about allowing him to do what he needs to do. I, I, uh, I remember a couple years ago, my daughter was probably seven or eight, and it was snowy and icy out, and she was getting out of my truck, she was, and she was stepping on the, on the side rails, and they were filled with ice, and so I grabbed her hand, and I, and I held her arm really tight. And she had my arm tight, but at some point, she lost her grip, but I didn't lose mine. See, no matter how tight she thought she was holding on to me, and on how, no matter how dependent she thought she needed to be, I had her, and I wasn't going to let her go. So if you're here and you feel like your grip, you're losing your grip on Jesus, he's going to hold you, amen? Yes. He's got you. So you can keep trying to hold, but rest assured, he's not going to let you fall. And so, Father, what you do now, what only you can do, would you open? open hearts and minds to the truth of your word this morning. Father, would it, would it go forward in power and would you have your way in and through each of us? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Being a Christian is about trusting in Jesus day after day after day. And so I want to walk through together the first couple chapters, and I draw some things out here from the book of Acts. And so we begin in the first chapter, and it says, In the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So in, in some cases, Luke was an eyewitness account. We see in Acts chapter 16, he transitions to use we. So in some things, Luke was, was there, and in other things, he was careful to interview eyewitnesses. So Luke is, is very concerned with reporting accurately the events that took place here. And so it says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. That's the first place I want to pause, because how many people know sometimes before God's going to begin a work in your life, he just says, Wait. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to your prayer closet. I want you to go to this place. I want you to wait. And how many people know it's hard to wait? It's hard to be still. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's harder to be still than to not sin, right? Mm -hmm. Be still. Not be still and, and, and. Just be still. Just trust in him. The NASB, the translation says, cease striving and know that I am God. Mm -hmm. Cease striving sounds like stop trying. But the, and know that I am God qualifies that to give us a little more clarity to say, no, no, no. You try where you can try, but in those areas where there's nothing you can do, and there's a lot of those areas, cease striving and know that he is God. Be still and trust in him. And so maybe you're here and you're in a season where the Lord is just saying, wait. It's okay. That's okay, you're in good company because when the Lord says wait, it's because he's preparing you. He doesn't just leave you to wait indefinitely. He's preparing you for something. 
And so they're told to wait, to wait on God. And I don't know about you, but I've learned that his timing is better than our timing. Sometimes the best thing that God can do is say no to our prayer requests. We can ask for something, and it may be that, it, that it's not good for us. It may just be that it's not good for us at that time. I remember having this brother, and I love him, close friend of mine, missionary hot, and he's always all over the place. Hey, the Lord told me I need to go to the Middle East. The Lord told me he's always, and I said, he might have told you that, but he, did he tell you that right now? You know what I mean? One of these people that always said, so sometimes the Lord is telling us, he's preparing us, and he, and he has something, he has a vision, he has something he wants us to do, but we need to be prepared in him. If we step out too quickly, we're doing it where we're doing it. And we don't want to do it. We want him to do it. So Jesus gives instruction. And in that instruction, there's a plan. And there's also a promise. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so here we have them given instructions. This is what you need to do. You need to wait. And what you need to wait for is a promise. You need to wait for a promise. And so I love when people sort of try to spiritualize all the characters of the Bible because you kind of know when people do that, they haven't really read the Bible because the Bible is filled with human people doing really human stuff. And so right now what we're going to see is a very human reaction. So after, after they're told to wait, and after they're told for the promise, this is their response. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Translation is, okay, so now are you going to do that thing that we've been waiting for you to do, that we want you to do, that we expect you to do? So now are you going to show up in my circumstance and my situation and make things better? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to re- relieve us from our persecution? Are you going to restore the kingdom and give us an elite status? Sometimes people come to Christ and that's what they think. Lord, now are you going to work in my life so I can accomplish my goals? See, contrary to what you may have been told, Jesus didn't come to help you to accomplish your goals. Right. Come on now. Jesus came to empower you and help you to accomplish his goals. Amen. And you know what? His goals are so much better than our goals. They really are. And so, you know, they're, again, they're, they're together. They're told to wait. They're, they're told, look, an amazing thing's going to happen. Here's a promise. And they're like, but what about right now? Is, is, this, is this what we're waiting for? Because you can wait when you kind of know what you're waiting for, right? You can wait when, when it's like, all right, I'm going to wait on God for him to do that thing I want him to do. But when he doesn't seem to be doing the thing we want him to do, then, then what? Now it's hard to wait. That's where people kind of start to fall off. Maybe take matters into their own hands. Maybe do what they want to do. See, the disciples' focus here is not on the spiritual, it's on the physical. In fact, it's so in the physical that their vision is limited. See, I've preached before that God will use our circumstance to bring attention to our condition. 
And he is much more concerned with our condition than our circumstance. Sometimes he relieves our circumstance. Sometimes he shows up in our circumstance and his grace and mercy and extravagant love. Sometimes he does what we're hoping he'd do. And other times he uses that circumstance to bring attention to our condition. They're looking for a physical Israel. And Jesus is saying, you guys have no idea I'm about to build a spiritual Israel. I'm going to bring a kingdom down. It's just nowhere near. The kingdom that you're describing, the kingdom that you want, doesn't compare to the kingdom that he has. What you want for your life doesn't compare to the vision he has for your life. Verse 7, Jesus continues to fulfill the plan. God is going to provide the power. There's a lot of P words this morning that will hopefully help us to remember Because God's fire is going to move from the old temple to the new temple, us. God's presence is going to move from the old temple to the new temple, us. But it's the same mission. It's the same goal. We're going to be his witnesses to a lost world. So Acts, we we move to chapter 114 after we see the power and we hear the promise. And it says... In verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now they have a plan, they're empowered, and they have a promise. Us, church, we, Christians, we know what the plan is. We know that we've been empowered, and we know that we have a promise. And so they do the exact right thing, which is, well, we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray to hear from our Heavenly Father. We're going to be united together, waiting together, praying together. See, this is both descriptive and prescriptive. This talks about what they did, and it also prescribes what we are to do when we want to see, when we get to the second chapter, verse 42, and we want to see the end result. Every church sees that as the blueprint. That's that's what you want to see. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and God moved. We're going to get to that. But before we get to that, we've got to see what led up to that. And so that's where we are. The rest of the chapter uh, in chapter one is going to describe a process because it doesn't just happen right away. There's a process. And the first thing they needed to do was a very practical matter. They had to replace Judas. They had to decide who was going to join them on this journey. What, What person? And they didn't just go pick somebody. They didn't be like, well, we kind of like that guy. We don't like that guy. Or it wasn't political. They brought it to the Lord. Because even though we're empowered, even though there's a plan, even though there's a process, we got to pray so we make sure it's, we're doing what he wants us to do. See, especially as I'm preparing with the pastors for the business meeting when we're talking about the vision going forward, I have a passion, I have a burden, I have a vision. But I need to make sure, and I keep telling these guys, hey, Let's make sure I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want it to be my vision. I don't want to build anything. I want him to. And so it's not of him. I want it to be shut down. See, I I don't want to get ahead of God, but I don't want to lag behind either. I want to be emboldened to do what he's called me to do, but it's his church. 
It's, it's his plan. It's his process. And so by praying, they're saying, Lord, we want what you want. We don't want what we want. And so it's very important that as the church, we see this and we seek to follow this. And then we see in the beginning of chapter two, the title is Pentecost. It could be called power. And we see it says when the day of Pentecost, I'm beginning chapter two, verse first verse. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. They were still waiting. They were still waiting together for the promise. They were obedient. I'm sure at some point, they, you know, they could have got tired of waiting. They could have, you could, the crowds should have, you know, could have shifted away. They could have started doing their own thing. But no, they believed. And so they waited. And so I can't encourage you enough. If you're here and you feel like you're in that period of waiting, it's okay. Don't wait alone. Wait with other people. Pray with other people. See, we're called to do this thing together. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they appeared, it, there appeared to them tongues as fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, I don't know what they were waiting for, or I should say, they don't know what they're waiting for. I don't know what they were expecting. But I can guarantee you it wasn't that. I can guarantee you that wasn't what they were expecting. And it's important here to point out that this was not them trying to determine the way God's move ought to look. It says they were speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. That means the Spirit decided what was a good gift to give. And in this instance here, it also said that the people that were there were so confused and they were perplexed and they were confounded because these guys who were Galileans who didn't understand and speak these other languages were speaking languages. These were actual languages. They were real languages that other people understood. So that means if I'm here right now and you know that I don't speak Portuguese... And all of a sudden, I stop speaking Portuguese. You're going to be confounded. You say, wait a minute. That's Brian. I thought you were French and Scottish. You just found out. I'm very excited about my Scottish. You know, I did my whole life. I was told I was all French. And I did the, uh, you know, the ancestry. And I call my mother. I'm like, my whole life has been a lie. I'm one third Scottish. I was so excited about that. It's like William Wallace. I want to buy like a... There he is, my, my brethren, my Scottish brethren. Just don't wear a skirt. Right, don't call it that. You, you, got, you security, take him out of here. <laughs> Where was I? So it says, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation. So they was, these were good people, and they're so confused, and they're so confounded, and it's having such an impact on everybody that they go... Maybe they're drunk. I mean, that was a very human reaction. These dudes, maybe they're drunk. I don't know. Maybe they speak Portuguese. I don't know. It's, I don't know what's going on here. And then I love this. I love this because I don't know about you, 
But I love Peter. I love Peter because most of Peter's life, as, as passionate as he was, he was a hot mess. I mean, Peter was just like the king of reaction. Am I talking to anybody here? Like Peter just like thought, do it. Like he, he didn't even have the thought. Just, did, you know, ready, fire, aim. Like ready? I mean, that's, that's Peter. And God bless him. He was well-intentioned oftentimes, but he just, you know, I react sometimes. My wife says I react all the time. I'm passionate. It's good to be passionate, but sometimes you got to be measured. you got to be... And so Peter, the same Peter who denied even knew Jesus. I don't know that guy. I don't even know what you're talking about. The same Peter who was quick to cut off the ear of the soldier. Like, Jesus, Peter, you know, put your sword away. Relax. I got this. The same Peter who, when Jesus was telling him his plan for ministry, Peter's like, no, 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 wait a minute. No, I don't think that's a very good idea. <laughs> to which Jesus replied, I mean, talk about a rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Jesus is like, Peter, you're not seeing things with spiritual eyes. You're limited. See, sometimes that's what we do. We, we tell Jesus what our plans are and we ask him to sort of, hey, here's what I'm thinking. I see it in the recovery world. I always know the difference between, you know, one of the metrics for success, and I've been doing it for a long, long time, and I've done 100 interventions, and people will call me, and they'll give me a list of all the things they're going to do for their recovery. All right, well, how about you call me when none of that works, and I'll, I'll be here. I feel like we do that spiritually. I feel like we, we come to God, and we give him a list of all the things we're going to do, and he goes, all right, well, let me know when that doesn't work out. But when people call and they say, I, don't, I, I, need, I need help, tell me what to do. See, that, that's, that's what we need to do. It's good to have passion. It's good to have commitment. It's good to have focus. But we've got to have direction or we're just all over the place. So Peter had a good heart. Same, same Peter that, that fell out of the boat. I mean, stepped out of the boat and fell in the water, right? This same Peter whose ministry was marked by mistakes. And so if you're here and you're like, you know, you know, I believe in Jesus, and, but my past, I mean, I, you know, I, I was a mess. I denied him. It's okay. But, you know, but no, I, I said some things and I did some things and, and I offended him. It's okay. Jesus denied Peter. You know how Peter, you know how Jesus restored Peter? I mean, Peter denied Jesus. You know how Jesus restored Peter? I know you denied me, but I'm going to make you, I'm going to build my church on your faith. See, when God restores you, he doesn't just restore you. He, he equips you. He uses your past. He uses your past to help you minister to others. See, when God moves, people take notice. When God moves, things change. When God moves in our lives, people change. And you know what? We change so that he can use us to help other people change. That's how it works. A healthy disciple makes other disciples. That's what we're called to do. It's not just be disciples, but make disciples. 
And so what we're now seeing is what Jesus talked about. The Spirit would come to empower them and us to be witnesses. The church is about to move from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the beginning. And we know that the story continues. And so God's going to build his church. That's, there's no question. The question is, are we going to be part of it? Or are we going to sit on the sidelines? Peter fell, but at least he got out of the boat. See, it's easy for us to criticize Peter. See, Peter took his eyes off Jesus, fell. You're in the boat. You're in the boat. Get out of the boat. See, we have to be bold in our faith. And so this Peter, suddenly, it looks different. This Peter who reacted, who was emboldened, but usually emboldened to say something he probably shouldn't have said. Now, I love this in Acts 2.14. It says, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of people speaking different languages, and they're confounded and perplexed, and people are going, maybe they're drunk. It says, Peter stood up and raised his voice. He's like, no, no, no. Hey, everybody, listen up. And this isn't going to be just Peter talking now. This isn't just another one of my nonsensical ramblings. But I'm emboldened now to preach the word. And now what Peter's going to do is critical. Because Peter's going to show them who Jesus is. Because our faith isn't built on tradition. It's not built on myth. It's built on the truth that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is alive, that that awaited Messiah has come. And so what Peter's going to do here, and we see it, I begin, I believe in verse six, in verse 16, he's going to start quoting David from Psalm 16, and he's going to basically tie in and say, look, From the Old Testament, which was their Bible, he's going to say, let's look at the promise. Yeah, the kingdom's going to be restored. Yeah, the Messiah has come. But this is bigger than we thought. And he's saying, that Jesus that you crucified, he's alive. He's risen. He's the Messiah. So it doesn't matter what you used to think. It doesn't matter what you used to know. There's a new reality here. See, Paul in Corinthians says, look, if Jesus hasn't been resurrected, if Jesus isn't alive, he doesn't just say, just go out, you know, buy the bumper stickers anyway, because, I mean, Jesus was a good example. He doesn't just say, well, I mean, he was a good teacher. He says, if Jesus wasn't resurrected, your faith is worthless. That's the Bible says. If Jesus isn't alive, if he wasn't who he claimed to be, your faith is worthless. In fact, he says, and more than that, of all people, you'd be pitied if the only hope you have for Jesus is in this life. That means Paul's going, if all you get out of Jesus is he's a good example or a good teacher, people ought to feel bad for you because that means you have no hope and you're still dead in your sin. Jesus didn't come so that we can take our version of the American dream and say, ah, eternal life, that sounds good. Let me add that. That's not the gospel. 
In fact, that is the opposite of the gospel. The American dream says, I deserve. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. And the gospel says it's all about him, and it's all about what he wants. And the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so the gospel is good news. It's the most encouraging news in the world. But we're going to see in a moment that the reality of that bad news has to come to bear in our lives for it to produce true, repentant hearts. Before we get to that Acts 2.42, we have to know what took place. We have to know there was a period of waiting for a promise. And then that promise was fulfilled. And there was his presence. And there was a plan. And now they're in a process. And that is the book of Acts. That is the history of the church. He's alive. We have his presence. People don't come to understand the truth of who Jesus is, then all we are offering them is some way to accomplish their goals, some get-rich-quick scheme, some, you know, American dream plus, or your, what we want may not be what's best for us. See, we need to figure out what he wants, and we need to be open to say, you know what, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. See, I've said before that I'm here, that I do this because I love you with all my heart. And I love you so much that I would rather tell you a truth that makes you dislike me than a lie that causes you to love me. Because it is easy to just get up there and encourage people and tell people what they want to hear and try to make them feel good about themselves and the crowds will grow. And I have no criticism against large churches, but if there's 10,000 people or 20,000 people in your church on Sunday and you're not radically changing the community, something's wrong. Come on now. Come on. See, Jesus doesn't want fans. He wants followers. And here's the thing about following. You can't kind of follow somebody. You're either following or you've stopped following. And sometimes that's okay. Sometimes we can barely follow. Sometimes we're limping along. Sometimes we're just looking and we're going, I know i got to follow that guy, but i got to catch my breath. You know, sometimes, you know, the sweetest times are when we're so weak, when we don't have the energy like the man with his mat, when we can't even get to Jesus, but we're in a community where we have brothers and sisters around us, and they say, I know you need to follow Jesus, and I know you don't have any strength. I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to gossip about you. I'm going to pick up your mat, and I'm going to take you to Jesus. Because that's, that's a picture of the church. That's what we ought to do. But you can't kind of follow. You're either following and making some progress toward him, or you're not. And here's the thing. Legalism, the sense that it's all about works and what you do, and if you don't do those things, God's not going to be happy. It's the same exact problem as license, which is it doesn't matter what you do. 
In that, both of those things have to do with what we can do. And it matters not what we can do. It matters everything what he can do. And that's the good news of the gospel. When Sam said last week, you can't do it, he's right. But guess who can? Jesus. See, to repent doesn't just mean a change of mind. To repent is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Repent to a Roman soldier, if you're walking one way, to repent was to stop and turn around and walk the complete opposite way. It wasn't just to stop, walk one way and to stop and recognize and go, this is the wrong way. No. Oh, well. Let me tell everybody how this is the wrong way so everybody knows. No. You turn around and you walk the other way. And so there's no salvation without repentance. And I know that that might not be a, maybe that's something you've never heard. That's biblical. We're going to see in a moment. See, in my addiction, in my mess of a life, I've never blamed God, but I remember so clearly at one point being like, Lord, why did you allow things to get so messy? Not even so much for me, but really for the people around me. Like, why did it have to get so bad? And he said, because that's what it took for you to get to the end of yourself. And I thought, man, what an expression of love. See, I love this. And everybody reads Acts 2.42. Everybody repeats that. But I don't hear this preached on a lot. And this preceded Acts 2.42. Peter preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, Peter tells them, here's who Jesus is. You didn't recognize it, and you crucified him. And they could have made excuses. They could have just said, you don't know what you're talking about. That's how they could have received that. That's how some people today receive the truth of who Jesus is. God is holy and perfect. And you've offended him. Well, you know, excuses. They could have done that. And that could have been the end. They could have walked away, and some people do. But watch what happens when they don't. See, in, in verse 37... It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were wrecked. It wasn't a feel-good sermon. It doesn't say, Peter stood up and encouraged them in the love of the Lord. No. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. It doesn't say that, though. It says, Peter Peter preached a message that wrecked everybody. They were a mess. They recognized the bad news of both who God was and who they were in light of God. See, a lot of times we feel bad for sin, but we feel bad for the effect of sin in our lives. We feel bad because we got caught, or we got in trouble, or our life circumstances took a turn for the worse because of our decision. True repentance is like David when we recognize that we've sinned against a holy God. Not that we've embarrassed ourselves. Not that, you know, we need to learn to be, to mourn over, over our sin, not just the effect of our sin. 
So they were cut to the heart. They felt bad. And now what they did next is critical, is key, because I think we've all been at that place where we've been cut to the heart, where we've heard some truth, some reality, where we've seen ourselves in light of God and it's wrecked us. And so we've looked at other Christians and we've said, I can never do that. Or we've just felt so bad about ourselves, we've tried to drown it out in drugs or alcohol or red relationships or just keep working or try to pursue this or pursue that. Never works. I heard it said once, if you want to run away from God, recognize that the devil's always going to provide the transportation. I was in Team Challenge. I was doing like a move job thing. You know, I helped move and I was in... In this house, and they had this uh, needlepoint. Is that what it's called? The old school. Come on, bro. You do needlepoint. Stop. Just stop. We know. We know. Crochet. But I'll never forget this. There was a thing on the wall, and it said, God's will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. God's will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. If you are here now, you are not here because somebody invited you. You are not just here because, oh, you know, maybe I should go to church today and I can check that off and start my week off right. You are here because God wants to meet you in this place. And it's okay if the truth of the gospel brings conviction. It's okay if you're cut to the heart because God breaks us not to keep us broken, but to heal us and make us whole. And what you do in those moments where you find yourself broken make all the difference. And so when we go back to the text, we see their response was, brothers, what shall we do? I'm broken. I'm repentant. I'm cut to the heart, but I'm not going to run away. I'm not going to drown my sorrows. I'm going to say, what do I do? And see, the good news of the gospel is the answer to that question. In our brokenness, what do I do? And that's why it's good news. If you don't know that you need a savior, then the good news that Jesus came as a savior is not good news to you. You don't even understand your condition. You're still going, are you going to bring the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to, Lord, are you going to work this situation out in my life? Are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? And then when he doesn't, you either think he's not there or he's not interested, and he's just going, no, that's not, that's, it's bigger than that. We miss it. So often, we miss it and we settle. We settle when God has something so much bigger. Can you imagine what our family, what our lives, what our church would look like? If we just believe this stuff, if we trusted, if we would do what, we, what he's called us to do, if we would stop making everything about us, you're not the center of the universe. He is. And you and I exist to bring him glory. And here's the thing. When we recognize that and when we live that way, the fulfillment, the sense of meaning and purpose and value so far transcends Anything that you can fathom, as sure as I'm standing here, I wish I could convey that to you more adequately than my words. To tell you that the promises God has, that the the plans he has in your life are so much greater than what you think is your best life. If you'd only embrace it. 
if you'd only be obedient to trust. And so what is Peter's response to that? Repent, every one of you, and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn away from your old life, be baptized, and God's going to make you new. That's the great news. That's the greatest news in the world. But they needed to come to a place where they needed to know their need of Christ. And then it says this promise. It's for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God would call. You know what that means? That's prescriptive. That means it promises for us. With many other words, he warned them. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. And 3,000 were added to their number. It's probably 3,000 men, probably like, more like 5,000 people. Yeah. <laughs> See, Peter knew that it's not about tickling people's ears and creating a big group of thousands of people that just come around for the loaves and fish. Peter knew that when you preach the real gospel, that God shows up and that true repentance would lead to life. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And before you get to Acts 2.42, where the church is together and they're dedicated and they, and they have a perfect community, they had to wait on the Lord. They had to be prayerful. They had to receive his power and his promise. Yes. And then they had to recognize, they had to receive their need their repentance. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Faith doesn't come by somebody saying, believe in Jesus and all your wildest dreams come true. What did you, Jamie last week said it was the Pedro Jesus for Napoleon Dynamite. Vote for Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true, right? That's not, that's not the gospel. It is good news, and God does bless people financially at times. I mean, you can see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it happened to Job, it happened to Joseph. I mean, but that's not the good news. That's not, that's just, he's an extravagant father, and sometimes he loves to give you good gifts, but that is not it. The blessing in Job is not that at the end his stuff was restored. He didn't even care about that. It was incidental. The blessing in Job is that at his darkest moment, when he wasn't so respectful in the way he talked to God, when it was real and ugly and he cried out, he felt the presence of God. And Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I'll leave. None of it. It's physical. It doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. It's his presence. That matters. And then most of, most of us know what happens next. Most of us know. Every church uses this as the blueprint. Acts 2 in chapter 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. In other words, they continued to do what they were supposed to do. It says that as anyone had need, they met the need. They sold stuff to meet the needs. That means if somebody said, hey, man, you know, I don't have any food. Somebody didn't go, let me pray for you. Let me, let me call somebody. Let me see what we can do. They said, well, I have food. Let me maybe give you some of that. See, it wasn't so much that they did that. Right away, you'll see the practical application. These widows got more food. These, it's, it's, it, but it was the ideal. 
It was the sense of, it's not about me, it's about us. They moved from an identity that was very individualistic, and in the West, that's just how we think. Have it your way. It's all about you. We read scripture. What is this saying to me? That would have been foreign. Scripture would have always been read. Now, you can say that. There's a precedence there. I'm not saying scripture won't speak specifically to us in circumstance. It does, and it will. But I'm saying they read it initially to say, what is God saying to us, his people? Now, what does this mean to me? I remember years ago being in Bible studies, 10 people would sit around and be like, I think this says this. And somebody else would go, well, I think this says this. And everybody would isn't that nice? And, and I would, even back then, I didn't know. I'd be like, well, that can't be right. It can't be. I mean, we have to know what it really says before we can see what it says to us. What is God saying to his people? And then how do I apply it to my life? Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles, and all those who had believed were together, and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as any had need. Day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with glad and sincere hearts. It wasn't reluctant. It wasn't out of compulsion. They didn't feel bad about it. People weren't, it wasn't, you know... It was something they wanted to do. And then you know what it says? And the Lord continued to add daily to the number of those being saved. Because if, if we do our part, if we're obedient, he's going to be faithful to grow his church. Amen. When this church grows, it's not because we did anything. It's because we allowed him to do it through us. Amen. I want to see revival. Yes. I want to see people serious about Jesus. I don't want to give God any more excuses. And I, you've heard me preach before. Revival? You ask people, I want revival. And you say, well, what does that mean? They're like, well, the country needs to change. And my neighbor needs to change. My wife, she definitely needs to change. My boss, he needs to change. Everybody needs to change. I want revival. <laughs> That's not what that is. Revival begins when I say, man, I need to change. I don't want to be the same. I don't want to settle for what God's done. I want to continue to pursue for what he wants to do. I want to continuously be filled by the Spirit. I want to be empowered by the Spirit. I want to be led by the Spirit. I want people to be saved from their hopelessness. People are so broken and lost. And you know what we do? We talk about them. And we debate them and we criticize them and we point out all the ways they're wrong. And it's not an intellectual thing. It's a heart thing. They know in their heart they're wrong. They know something's wrong. But the next time somebody annoys you, instead of fighting with them, instead of name-calling, instead of belittling, you're like, you know what, man, I don't know what you're going through, but can I, is it hard if I pray for you? Because I love you. Watch how quickly people get disarmed. And I know it's hard. Like, I get that this is hard. This is not easy. I understand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess right now. I remember being in Team Challenge, and I was, I was a leader, which wasn't mean, didn't mean, like, I'm a leader like now, like I'm somewhat mature. But it meant, you know, I was just a little less crazy than I had been. <laughs> and so the guys that go around that are in front of Walmart and all the stores passing out drug literature, I drove those guys around. I was their leader. 
And so I'm driving in the van. And now, first of all, when you're driving, I feel like you, you should get a pass. I feel like, like you have to behave at all times. But when you're driving, you, you kind of get a little grace, right? You just, so I'm driving and somebody cuts me off. And yeah, yeah but, but hey, I'm, I'm kind of holding it. I'm proud of myself because they cut me off and I didn't, I didn't respond. So that was good. But then they decided to tell me that I was number one. So now... I thought I said this in my head, but apparently I said, real funny until I pull you out of the car, and I realized that everybody in the van had stopped, and I looked in the rear view, and they were staring at me, and without missing a beat, I said, and pray for you. Christianity would be so easy if it just wasn't for people, right? <laughs> I know it's hard. I know it's hard to the un love the unlovable. And I don't know about you. I mean, you look like a pretty lovable group of people, but I was pretty... I was pretty unlovable when Jesus found me. And the people that were walking with me at that time the people who I lied to and stole from and hurt had every right to cast me aside. But they didn't. They didn't. They continued to love me when I was unlovable. And I am here today not only physically alive, but spiritually alive because of that love. We've got to learn to care for one another better, church. We're called to be witnesses, commissioned and empowered witnesses to the lost to say, this is the truth of who Jesus is, and this is what he came to do. He didn't just come to restore Israel. He came to do a whole new thing, a bigger Israel, a bigger restoration. He didn't just come to save you from your circumstance. He came to save you from hell and from death and from sin and from self. That's why he came. So we've got to receive the truth. Conviction that leads to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Feeling sorry just for the effects of your sin. Just make it so next time you try not to get caught. You get better at deceit. And that leads to what? The same patterns which lead to death. Godly sorrow is going, Lord, I am, this, I am helpless. I am hopeless without you. Intervene. And he does. And if you're here, and, 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 and this doesn't, you know, you're still trying to work it out in your head. And I, I'm a, I like that. I'm an intellect. I, I get the whole thing. But you know what? It doesn't have to make sense in your head. Because in your heart, you know it's true. And the Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. You are here this morning to do business with God. Because your life doesn't have to turn to what my life did or what Jamie's life. It doesn't have, the wheels don't have to fully come off the train for you to recognize your need of him. You can't do it and I can't do it, but he can and he will and he does. 
Look what happens when we put God first. You know, all the, all the wonderful things in the past year, I hear testimony after testimony of what God's doing. I mean, I know it's hard to believe, but it, ca- it causes me to cry. I tear up a little bit when I hear But people will call me and be like, I don't even, they don't even have words. I can see it. They'll walk up to me, and before the words come out, they're crying because God has moved in their life. Thank you, Jesus. You know how incredible that is? And you know what? That is the result of our faithfulness. That is the result of saying, Lord, you have your way. This is your church. You lead. We're just going to follow. May it never be what we want and always what he wants. See, this sermon is a study of boldness, a study of what happens when we trust in him and when we're faithful to do what he's called us to do. Psalm 27, verse 13 says, Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord and be brave and courageous. My dad used to love the phrase, God doesn't care how we started, but he cares how we finish. Peter fell, but Peter got out of the boat. I don't care what you did yesterday, what you did this morning, what your past looks like. You denied God, God you denied Christ, you, you, you belittled. Paul had Christians killed. We, we, we sort of gloss over that. Can you imagine to stand there and watch as somebody is crushed to death by stones and approve of that? So I don't know what kind of bad stuff you've done in your life, but talk to me later if it compares anywhere near that. And God said, yeah, I'm going to use you. Peter denied Jesus and said, yeah, I'm going to use you. Because when God restores you, he restores you. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up. Jesus said of Peter's faith, of, of Peter's recognition of who he is, of the, of the reality that Peter said, you're the Messiah. I know who you are. Peter said, Jesus said, on that, I'm going to build my church. On the truth of who I am. On the truth of a risen Savior. And he will and he does. So if you've fallen once or twice or three times, get on your feet again. And know that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until he comes again. See, Peter had at one point promised to Jesus that he would be willing to die for him. And then in his flesh, he denied him. But after the power of the Spirit came in his life, he made made that claim a reality. Church tradition tells us that when Peter was led to be crucified, that the only request he made was to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of dying in the same manner his Lord was. The same Peter who denied Jesus, the same Peter who was impulsive and said stupid things all the time, now preaches sermons. 3,000 people get saved. God restores him, uses him, and he gives his life up for his Lord and Savior in the end. Impressed by the way Peter and thousands of other Christians died, a Roman historian once wrote, if this Christianity 
is worth dying for. Perhaps it is worth living for as well. And Peter, in his final greetings, in 1 Peter 5.12, said this, I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and to assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. What you and I are experiencing is God's grace in our life. Church, let us together stand firm in that grace. Amen? Amen. Stand as we close.